Hello and welcome to The Stakes, where we don't mind that it's getting darker earlier and earlier because there are no windows in our podcast studio. I'm Julianne Ross, Deputy Editor of News and Politics at MTV News, filling in for my boss and your host, Holly Anderson. Coming up on the show, the managing editor of Bandcamp, Jess Skolnick, talks to our editorial director of music about the fire at an Oakland, California venue that killed 36 people. I hope that this leads to a greater understanding of why people need these spaces, why they're vital, and why they have to be protected. Then we talk to Molly Soda, an artist whose work is so radically accessible, the art world hasn't really figured it out. I don't know, I just never want to make anything that can't be accessed online, like ever. But first, an update. For last week's show, we went to North Dakota, where the Standing Rock Sioux Tribe and their supporters were blocking the construction of the Dakota Access Pipeline near traditionally sacred ground. Protesters also feared that the pipeline could poison the local water supply. It looked like their objections weren't going to be heard by the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers, who control the land. Until Sunday, when the Army Corps announced it would not approve a final part of the construction. To understand what the Army Corps decision means for water protectors, Marcus Ellsworth called up Aaron Wise, media coordinator for the Sacred Stone Camp in North Dakota and the International Indigenous Youth Council at Standing Rock. Hello, Aaron. How are you doing today? <laughs> I'm pretty fucking incredible right now. How are you? Fantastic. Uh, so news just came down tonight. Uh, we're speak- speaking on Sunday night when... The Army Corps of Engineers has announced that they are not going to grant the easement that would allow the Dakota Access Pipeline to go under Lake Oahe. Um, so what, what, what are y'all feeling about this out at uh, the Ocheti Shakuin camp, at, at the Sacred Stone camp? What's the vibe like right now? Um, everyone right now is very ecstatic. We're thrilled. We feel um, validated in our efforts. Not that we needed validation, but we definitely feel seen and we definitely feel heard. And that's something that um, our people are not used to. So it's uh, a very happy climate here right now. Um, Beyond that, there um, is, you know, just an air of reality. All of us realize that uh, President Trump, uh, presidential-elect Trump, is coming um, you know, within a month and a half or so, if even that. And, uh, you know, he has investments in the pipeline and in the fossil fuel industry. Okay, so well, what does this mean uh, for people in the camps? Are y'all going to stay out there um, for a while longer as this continues to develop? Well, we definitely need to ensure that we are still out here um, protecting the river. We know that the um, pipeline uh, company has experienced that they will not um, stop drilling. They said that the work that the Army Corps of Engineers can do is grant them a fine and they have the money to pay that fine. But as of January 1st, they will start losing $2.2 million a day. Um, And, you know, with other, um, you know, numbers thrown in there as well, you know, we've been told that it will be $83.3 million a month that um, they stand to lose um, if they are not completed by January 1st, which they will not be. And uh, we just want to make sure that we are out here uh, at least until then or with plans for that time to ensure that um, they continue, you know, to see um, their work fall to ruin. Um, we we want to make sure that we continue starving the stake. Also, we have to stay out here long enough if we are um, absolutely uh, for any reason, by the tribe, um, you know, the people that are responsible for this land, that um, we ensure that we take 
take care of the earth and put it back to the way it was before. We don't just leave anything out here. We want to make sure that we take care of the earth, too, and um, not add our own contribution of destruction to it. Let's say that the pipeline gets rerouted, because that seems to be, within that statement from the Army Corps of Engineers, there is a discussion of rerouting the pipeline. Um, If it just gets bumped downstream, um, what will y'all do? Will y'all follow that route to continue to stop it altogether? Or is the the ever going to remain on the on the Sioux tribal land? No, no. This is the resurgence of um, indigenous power right now. You know, so many of us over three hundred and seventy eight of the five hundred and sixty six federally recognized tribal nations are here in camp, and we have over twenty two cities that are standing with us publicly. We have. Uh, global indigenous nations that are standing with us and we're going to go to the next pipeline and we're going to shut that one down and we're just going to keep going because it is it is our job to protect this earth and that's what we intend to do. So would you call this a victory for now at least? Oh yeah, today is a beautiful day. <laughs> Wonderful. I'm already feeling victorious. This is the first time in a long time that we've felt this day. That was Aaron Wise, media coordinator for the Sacred Stone Camp in North Dakota and the International Indigenous Youth Council at Standing Rock. We also wanted to speak with Ava Cardenas, organizer for the Indigenous People's Power Project, who we interviewed for last week's show. She was providing direct action trainings every day at Osheti Shakowi Camp, but when Kasia Mihailovich called her, she was in Puerto Rico. Yeah, I mean, I think for me, it was it was a, a good news. You know, it, it was definitely good news to kind of hear that the corporate engineers finally decided to do something and be very specific as to, you know, where they stood at the moment. Um, but that that's the key part for me, that, that this decision is not a final decision, that this decision is, continues to be very vague. Um, you know, it, it does put sort of like a, a hole for, for things that are happening right now. But I, I also am reminded about the fact of how many times the, you know, engineer corps has adjusted for... Energy transfers and and the and the project itself to kind of hold, and they have not followed instructions. And so, um, while I understand that this is somewhat of a victory, um, realistically, in, in the sense for me, just based on my history and how I see things, um, you know, the pipeline is ninety five percent built. Um, this is sort of a delaying tactic for them. Um, I think that the hopes of it is that people, you know, will lose interest or that people will think that this is already a victory and. and and go back home or, you know, let off their, their watchful eye away from it. Um, and that's when they're going to come in. And Yeah. So are you at Standing Rock now? I, I am not. We had to um, travel over here to, we're actually leaving Puerto Rico today. Um, we're talking with communities here that are also being victims of the toxic ashes that are trying to dump in the coast of Puerto Rico. So we've mm-hmm. been kind of meeting with folks here to talk about some of those issues. Um, Are you planning to go back to Standing Rock or anyone from IP3, or uh, is it time to pack up and go home? Yeah, I mean, right now we still have about, you know, 12 to 15 of our folks from the network that are at Standing Rock. I'm not there myself, but the plan is for me to go back in January. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I think that we, again, are under the guidance of the Chicago camp and the leadership. Um, so depending on what they tell us and how they want to move forward, we, we will respect that and we will, you know, take their guidance and go from there. Um, but for us, our work continues to develop indigenous folks, um, native folks to become trainers and facilitators and also action 
um, direct action trainers and, and coordinators because we see that this is a longer fight, that this fight in Stanley Rock is also replicated in other places, like Puerto Rico, for example, but also, you know, in, in um, Arizona. Uh, so mm-hmm. we want to just continue that follow-up with people. We That's our mission, and it is to encourage folks to train up and, and become themselves, um, those trainers. And so, you know, we'll be at the camp until we are asked to leave by, by tribal leadership, um, but we will continue to do our work, too. That was Ava Cardenas of IP3. As of now, there are still water protectors living at the camp, and we'll keep you updated on any new development at Standing Rock. On December 2nd, a fire tore through an artist warehouse called The Ghost Ship in Oakland, California, killing 36 people. The Ghost Ship was a safe haven for marginalized artists being pushed out of Bay Area neighborhoods thanks to rapid gentrification. This space was, for many, solace in a shaky society. MTV News Editorial Director of Music, Jessica Hopper, sat down with Managing Editor of Bandcamp, Jess Skolnick, to speak about the importance of DIY spaces like Ghost Ship. A lot of conversations have started in the wake of the Ghost Ship tragedy of this past weekend about the whys of underground spaces. Can you talk about what brought you to DIY community spaces and what has kept you there? My parents are musicians and I was raised in a, you know, just a musical household. That's they, when I was born, I believe they were still in a band together. Um, my dad ran an amplifier shop out of our basement, um, did sound for a bunch of punk shows. Um, they were record collectors. All their friends worked at record stores. Like they were us essentially. Um, so I, um, so I had a vocabulary for knowing that music was super important and, um, it just always emotionally resonated with me. Um, I started my parents because my parents are working class folks doing, you know, my mom was in school, um, and my dad was, um, working full time. So, I kind of took care of myself and um, looked after myself a lot once I got to the age that I could do that and ended up falling in with um, some extremely bad people because I was very shy and scared and weird and um, interested in uh, listening to records and reading books and not playing sports and ended up getting involved pretty heavily with drugs and a really, really bad environment very, very early. Finding punk shows, um, which... I actually, I begged my dad to take me to my first punk show, um, and he did because he is a wonderful and sweet person. Um, And you can imagine, like, an 11-year-old kid who is um, repeatedly being sexually assaulted and um, numbed with drugs is probably, like, just, like, I had my mind blown open. I was just like, this is a place where um, I can actually, like, be angry and talk about things that are going on with me and... um, where I feel like these people who are, you know, all 10 years older than me actually understand what I'm going through because none of my peers do. Um, that was also the point at which I was like starting to come out and I was really, really worried and didn't kind of, I didn't have like any gay reference points really. And, um, this was like kind of a beginning where I just started meeting like older queer folks and, um, just getting connected with a community uh, that I would grow up into and end up being part of for my whole life. And, 
like I became entangled with the idea of like every show being all ages and being accessible and also um, the idea of giving back to the community and um, using spaces that you wouldn't necessarily always use um, and just making sure that what you're doing is rooted in a sense of community and in your local neighborhood. Um, that's just a huge part of how I was raised and I've always brought that to what I do. Um, and it, it just, I mean, that saved my life. Like it got me clean. It got me like into a place where I was doing, like where I was putting all of my energy into creative stuff. It got me the strength to get away from this group of boys who were abusing me. Like it, it gave me everything. It gave me life. I would have been dead within a year. I, Absolutely, I'm sure of that. One of the things about finding a DIY community, as you're saying, it can be life-affirming. It can be sometimes underground shows and finding a very specific kind of community you referenced, Riot Girl, for example. You know, when I was growing up, you know, sometimes going to... Um, you know, sort of right girl centered show and being in a space with a lot of other women was really crucial to me to find a place that just wasn't macho mm -hmm. since so many punk shows were. And I think a lot of, uh, a lot of times sort of what people might miss about the idea of DIY scenes is, you know, that sometimes they can be very, you know, self-selecting that you can find a community within the community mm -hmm. because, you know, um, sometimes the broader music community, whether it's electronic music, punk music, hardcore, whatever, um, often just sort of reiterates the ills of the broader culture. And just because we're into cool music doesn't necessarily mean it's that much more evolved of a space. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, one of the things that, uh, we know now about the, uh, ghost ship tragedy is that there were several, a trans people lost. And can you talk about the importance of finding safe space within a DIY community? Um, a friend of mine, my friend Julie Vick, said something that keeps sticking with me, um, which is that um, the wider world keeps talking about safe spaces when we can't even have um, community in safe buildings. And that is something so intense that has, I've just been turning that over and over in my mind, like the past few days. Um, because these spaces are like, I can't, it's hard for me to um, explain the enormity of finding people who are outsiders in the same way that you are an outsider, um, finding freaks that are freaks in the same way that you are um, and having the space in which you can be freaks together um, be a space that is nurturing and creative and um, that it is a space in which you learn to work together and to make things together um, the way that I've always described it is that um, going into those spaces is like alchemy you turn your traumas and your fears and your terrible, terrible experiences um, and all of the ways in which you have been marginalized by the outside world into beautiful things together. Um, and the power of that is so immense and has saved so many of us. Um, 
that it is, I mean, like there's nothing more fundamental to me about my connection to music. And I think that this is somebody who, something that um, folks who have um, really good ties with their blood family don't understand um, is that so many of us, they're like when your blood family pushes you away, um, you don't have the same kind of structures. You don't have the same kind of um, ability to like get necessary resources um, that we all get from our blood families. And so we have to build these families. Like where else can you house like a group of like poor folks who are marginalized in many other ways and don't have access to sometimes proper documentation. Like our, um, our, 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 um, our names may not line up with what's on our government IDs, um, obtaining jobs that, um, pay us enough because we have to be paid under the table because of that. Um, sometimes we are also undocumented immigrants. Like, uh, I am not, but I know many people who are also undocumented immigrants and trans folks. So like when you lack this institutional structure, this family structure, like the things that people who have fairly normal upbringings, like take for granted, like where else are you going to live? But in a, a place um, where the landlord takes cash and doesn't ask for your job history um, because you can't, you work under the table and can't provide them with job references. Like, it's, I mean, there's just all of these structures that are totally missing. And so you have to build some sort of like ramshackle thing together because what else are you going to do? Like, yeah. otherwise you're going to be on the street. I feel like the idea that is sort of lingering is like, oh, well, these people were like in an unsafe place, you know, that it's on them somehow, you know, I mean, mainstream media being what it is. I think I think uh, everyone is obviously really sad. It's very clearly a tragedy. What would you hope people take away from this? What do you hope changes in the wake of it? Uh, I hope that this leads to a greater understanding of the things that we've been talking about today, why people need these spaces, why they're vital, and why they have to be protected. Um, and hopefully someone somewhere um, who has any kind of institutional power will recognize that um, and be able to offer some support um, because all of our like inbuilt community support networks are working overtime right now. And like all of us are doing about a hundred different things and are stretched to our limits and stretch our capacities. And we can't keep these, we can't keep these vital spaces running without support from outside. So I really hope that somebody who has some kind of power sees it. There's a, there's a New York loft law now. Um, it was passed, I believe in the last two years. Um, if we could see something like a passage of that loft law, um, everywhere in the country that, that like, that would be incredible. Um, it, it requires landlords to, um, respond to safety, um, considerations in non-standard like warehouse and, uh, loft environments and um that they cannot kick the tenants out for asking like that is a huge protection and if that were everywhere like that would change so many things and even it even with that protection uh, we lose spaces in new york all the time because they are criminalized and you know cops will shut them down immediately 
the a a a bad fire code and like a you know folk like people who lost their lives in this fire is honestly like it could get so much worse um from here if we lost those spaces entirely thank you for joining me today thank you for having me that was Jess Skolnick, managing editor of Bandcamp, speaking with MTV News editorial director of music, Jessica Hopper. Molly Soda is an artist whose work lives mostly on the internet. On websites and platforms like Instagram or New Hive, where she uses photos, GIFs, and graphic design in a kind of online collage. Molly talked about her work with MTV News social media editor Darcy Wilder, also known as the girl behind the Twitter account webcam or computer aesthetics. <laughs> I think that when I was um, growing up, I was more using the internet as a source of like um, entertainment and as a source of communication and as a way to, like I, I use the internet as a diary the way I sort of do now, but it was a little more like me and my boyfriend did this and then we ate bagels and then we um, drove around in his truck and listened to Death Cab for Cutie. And um, and now it's sort of a little bit a little bit different, but um, I grew up using the internet, sort of archiving my entire life and sort of doing this. And then I went to school for art. Um, I studied photography, and then I got really sick of it. And I was like, I can't think in photos. That's not how it works for me. And I started sort of learning more about video art and performance art and and websites as art, um, sort of like these nonlinear websites or things that artists were doing on different platforms, like Second Life, for example. And I and it blew my mind. And I was like, this is what I this is what I care about. And it just started making sense. And then I made Molly Soda like the Tumblr account and was like, okay, like this will be my internet persona. And it sort of started off more as a persona and now it's sort of evolved less into like a caricature of me or a character and more into like um, the lines have sort of blurred as also I think that all of our lines have blurred with the internet and it's become a, a more fluid device for all of us. Yeah, I <laughs> totally agree. <laughs> I remember <laughs> not to bring up Rob Horning's Twitter, but his tweet is just like authenticity, like it's, I'm paraphrasing it, but like authenticity seeks to find like behind the curtain but authenticity is the curtain yes so like there's absolutely yeah i've also been like noticing more of the line where i've been seeing people react to me or react to like something i'll put on the internet that is like something that i just put on the internet Mm -hmm. that i don't like 
something that's more fictionalized version of myself Mm -hmm. and having to suffer the consequences and I'm like oh my god this is the rest of my life it's because we take everything at face value and like I do it too you know I look at someone else's content and I'm like you know I get like really in my head about it and I'm just like oh my god like they're doing this and this and this and like I suck and blah 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 and then I'm like, well, I'm just projecting a different persona. Like, I could project whatever persona I wanted to project. I mean, within reason, yeah. you know. But, like, we're all doing, we all have, our, like, our different, like, games that we're playing subconsciously or, like, whatever we're feeding into. Yeah. I was thinking of your work and feel like I'm pretty familiar. And then I also know that you have done a few, like, makeup tutorials and a video on astrology. And I was wondering if you differentiate, like, your artistic work and things that like you're just doing online like a like a like a like any other person yeah, online like a person in the world with an internet connection yeah I guess um part of my work is kind of about like blurring those lines and seeing like not having to label everything as like capital a art my astrology video I put out for fun but for example Um, like the comments on the video or the way that people react to the video may make it into my work somehow. Mm -hmm. But the video itself may not necessarily be like a piece of art. Yeah. If that makes sense. I think that does. And reaction seems to be like a big, like like hold a big part in your work. Mm -hmm. Um, Which I was thinking about because so much of your work is you in your bedroom and then the response to it. Do you ever work anticipating the like anticipating the reception to it and does that shape how you like the the decisions that you're making I think subconsciously yeah I think that we all kind of anticipate a reception whenever we're putting something online so I'm doing a book um, called pics or it didn't happen with uh artist Arvita Bystrom. She's a Swedish artist living in Los Angeles. Um, And we basically got together about a year ago over her being really frustrated that one of her Instagram photos had been taken down. And I don't remember what the exact photo was, but she had made this this tweet that that was also like posted to Facebook and she wrote like we need to make like a memorial or like have a memorial for everyone's like deleted Instagram photos and I wrote let's let's make a book and so we we did it we made a book and it's um it's basically all content that has been removed from Instagram for violating it, the community guidelines um so and a lot of that content ends up being Um, like nudity or suggested nudity or things of that nature. Also, you know, obviously like violent imagery or um, all sorts of stuff. But um, we put out kind of a call for submissions to get content for the book um, in a way to sort of like have a memorial or like elevate this like lost stuff. And And I think about that a lot in terms of like the way that we Uh, perform our personas online and sort of how we have um, how we're sort of performing with an audience in mind um, whether or not it's a large audience or a small audience or like you're thinking of one person when you're posting something Um, but that's definitely going to inform how we how we act whether or not we want it to so if I make an Instagram account with no followers and I 
just post every single picture that I take on my camera roll. That's like going to be different or a different performance than me make, having my Instagram with 60,000 followers and, you know, only posting once a day as to not like bother people. I don't know. I just never want to make anything that can't be accessed online. How would someone buy digital work? I think there's a lot of ways that you can support internet or digital artists. Um, I think that, okay, so if you want to buy a digital piece, the way that I've seen it done, the way that I've done it, is I usually sell my work in editions. Um, and I also sell, so it would basically just be a file that you would purchase and you would have on a USB. Um, and you would, um, if it's like a website, then it's going to be hosted online. And for example, like you would have to like renew the the hosting every year, however however often you have to do it. Like there's a domain name for it, etc. Or if it's a video and it's like a YouTube video, it remains on YouTube, but you own it and you basically have the rights to display it, to show it where, however you choose. Um, obviously there's like a contract that's written up and then there's a certificate of authenticity as well. But no, it's not something that you can just take and like put in your storage unit and like not look at like you, but also it's so much easier to deal with a digital file than it is to deal with like a giant painting or sculpture. But I think there's this childish need to like hold things and be like, this is mine and no one else can have it. But isn't there something so valuable about owning a YouTube video with like a million views? I just, I, I feel like this notion of like physicality is so weird because I feel like our virtual lives are so important to us and they affect us so much. And the things that we see on our computers and our devices are so, 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 so big. And I feel like because we can't hold it, it 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 like diminishes the value, but it's so valuable. I don't like I really don't understand. I, you know, I think that artists have to play that game and figure out where they want to be. But also, like, I don't think that I should have to change the work that I make just to make a lot of money. That was amazing. Cool. <laughs> IMO. <laughs> a plus. Great job. <laughs> Thanks so much. Thank you for coming, Molly. Yeah, of course. That was MTV News on Darcy Wilder talking to Molly Soda, a.k.a. Amalia Soto. You can find Molly's work by Googling Molly Soda or at mollysoda.tumblr.com or on her wildly popular Instagram account, Bloated and Alone, number 4, EVR, 1993. That's a great name. <laughs> close out, we'll go back to our favorite poet-in-residence, Marcus Ellsworth, performing a poem he wrote called Call Me Nero. Call me Nero and hand me my fiddle. The hills are already ablaze. He's no hero. With heart and hands little, what will he break in his first hundred days? 
Not your will, not your spirit, not your voice, cause I can hear it above your marching feet, echoing from your streets to the skies above Standing Rock. We'll make America great, but not by turning back the clock, by turning to you, and you turning to them, and them turning to the other, until we see each other as kin. We'll be that wall, standing tall, making sure that none of us ever falls. Call me Nero, I'm tuning my fiddle, but these hills don't have to be ablaze. Be your own hero and answer this riddle. What will you fix in the next thousand days? That was MTV politics writer and poet Marcus Ellsworth. I'm Julianne Ross, and those are the stakes. Holly Anderson will be back with you next week. Thanks for listening. This episode of The Stakes was produced by Michael Catano, James T. Green, Mukta Mohan, and Kasia Mihailovich for the MTV Podcast Network, with additional engineering by Little Everywhere. You can subscribe to this and all of our other shows on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, Spotify, or wherever else you find your favorite podcasts. 